morning I want to, I want to talk about, um, if you were here a couple of uh, weeks ago, a fortnight ago, we, we, I, I, was, uh, I want to kind of dovetail what we were talking about a fortnight ago in terms of we, we talked about what do we need to put down in order that we can pick up our cross. Before we can pick up a cross, we need to put something down to take things out of our arms so that we've got space to pick up that cross and what that means. I want to sort of continue on this morning and talk about identity. Uh, who and whose? Who and whose? Let's get straight into the word. Uh, there's, there's <laughs> identity is one of, those, one of those things that you can speak about and you go, gosh, if, I wonder if there's anything in the Bible about identity. You know, you can basically pick up the entire Bible and, and almost just go, this book is about your identity. <laughs> so it wasn't a case of trying to work out uh, what to put in as to what to omit. Um, you'll notice on, on your chairs, um, you don't have to look at them now, they'll make a bit more sense, but there's, there's a little, for want of a better word, homework <laughs> sheet, um, and that'll sort of unpack a little bit further with some of these other classic identity verses and, and, and references in Scripture about identity. But what I want to do is I actually want to go into the Old Testament and um, read a very well-known story or parts thereof, this very well-known story that is not often linked with when people talk about identity. But I want to draw some things out in it which I think are really important. So if you've got your Bibles, um, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 17. And this is the very well-known story of David and Goliath. Before we start reading, uh, the backstory to this, and you can do this in your, in your own time and your homework, is it's really important to read uh, perhaps 1 Samuel from about 14 if you want to hear some backstory on how David came to be in this position. And particularly 1 Samuel 16 is about Samuel's uh, anointing of David and sort of saying this guy's going to be in the next king and how he chose him and that sort of thing. It, it's, good, it's a really great bit of backstory to learn how he got to this point because this is the great big defining moment David was the second king of Israel Saul was the first it initially the other the other really interesting part about this is that it wasn't um Israel wanting wanting a king wasn't actually a great thing they're cracking it with God because they looked at other nations around them and saw that they had a human king why can't we have one it wasn't really <laughs> that that's the bit of backstory Saul, Saul had some really major character flaws. And so David comes on the scene. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating little study to contrast the difference between Saul's selection criteria and David's. It, it, it's quite powerful just to look at that. Anyway, let's pick up the story. 1 Samuel 17. And I'm going to read a few chunks. And, and, and we'll, we'll, because it's a big scripture, I won't read the whole thing. We'll be here all day. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokor in Judah. They pitched a camp at Ephesdemin between Sokor and Ezekiah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. So imagine two armies facing off against each other in a valley. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites occupied another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, nine and a half feet, three meters. I, actually, if I had more time, I wanted to actually draw a life-size Goliath and stick him out the front here. Three meters is probably higher than that beam. 
So imagine a guy like that, axe blade shoulders, bench press a freight train, kind of snap your head between his pecs, big dude. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. I'm not exactly sure what the new money is in that, but it's heavy. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. Bronze is pretty heavy, yeah? His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. All of this is to highlight the fact that this is one big guy. (laughs) Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies. That's important. Just remember that we'll go back to that. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight one another. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Even Saul was terrified. Thanks, Leash. We're going to jump ahead to verse 16. For 40 days, this is the other interesting part because it's easy to gloss over. In in the great story, or if they make a movie of it, he kind of comes out once and goes, I defy you guys. He did this for 40 days, more than a month. Every day, they wheel out their champion with his little armor bearer. This happened 40 days. 40 days, Israel has had time to form a plan and choose someone to fight him. That's really important. Forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand, ranting and raving. Thanks, Leash. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Because his older brothers were down there, part of the army. David was still tending the flocks for his father. But this, is, this actually is post-Samuel and saying that this is, this is the next king. Okay, so it's post that, but he's not yet the king. Take along these 10 cheeses to your commander of the unit, see how your brothers are, and bring back some assurance from them. Tell me about the battle, in other words. How's it going? They were with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. This had gone on for more than a month. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. He only has to hear it once. (laughs) Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I'll let your imagination do what it is. They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Thanks, Lish. We're going to skip ahead again. 
David said to Saul, let no one lose heart or account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. Not to mention he could use you as a toothpick kind of deal. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. He's talking about himself. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear come along and carried off a sheep from the flock... I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Okay, that's what I'm kind of imagining. (laughs) All right. You've got a death wish. Go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? I kind of think that's pretty funny. He's calling David a stick. (laughs) What is this? A feather. A feather just landed on me. And the Philistine cursed David by his own gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. (laughs) As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. He kind of didn't need those other four stones, I'm thinking. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So he fell forward. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. With a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off the head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. That's the end of that. I know it's long, but I wanted to chew on that just for a little reason. David's identity, who he is, is the reason why I wanted to highlight the fact that he's been anointed by Samuel, but he's not yet king, is because even though he's not yet been named as Saul's successor and and crowned as king. He's already a leader. It's really important. The things that he says and does in this chapter 
gives us a bunch of clues about not just who David is, but whose he is. David already knows who he is in God well before he finds himself on the field of battle facing off with Goliath. And as a result, he is secure in victory because he points to God at his, as his source and strength and foundation, not himself. David's ability to be brave and do what he was able to do in stepping up to fight Goliath was founded in his unshakable identity in God. He attributes any wins he's had prior to this moment to God and sees the Philistine champion not as intimidating like the rest of the army, including Saul, mind you, scared of this guy, but as the next bear or lion. This guy's just the next bear or lion. I'll sort him out for you. And as someone who is standing against God, David's offense is not that he takes Goliath's ranting as personal. That's really important. He doesn't take Goliath's threats and ranting on board him personally. He's so narked that this guy, how dare you stand against God? This is my God. That's what gets up his nose. That's, that's, that's a really important distinction to make because it shows that his, his, the most important thing in his life is God, not himself, not his own ability. Oh, I want to tell you about myself. Goliath comes out and rants about himself. David doesn't go, well, I've killed bears and lions and I did it on my strength. No, he points to God when he tells Saul, you know what, this guy's another bear or lion. God, God delivered me from bears and lions. God will deliver me from this guy. Don't let him intimidate you. That's what he said. This guy's a kid. David's identity, attributes and characteristics. I just want to really quickly highlight some of these. David gives God the glory for past battles. He points to God as his source of strength and courage, not himself. We've touched on this a little bit already. David remembers God's faithfulness to him. God has done this before, so therefore he'll do it again. I'm not afraid of this guy. David boasts only in God. When Goliath taunts him, David doesn't retaliate in a self-reactionary kind of way. He doesn't get all defensive and reactive and run off a list of what he's done. Instead, he tells Goliath and all that can hear him as well. We know that there's more than, people, more than just Goliath listening to this conversation. The Philistines are listening to the conversation. The writer of the books listening to the conversation. The Israelites are listening to the conversation. The guy's shield bearer is listening to the conversation. He's not afraid. He tells Goliath, and all can hear him, that he, David, stands against him, not in his own name, but in God's name. And you, Goliath, have defied God. Who do you think you are? God is being slandered and disrespected. David doesn't care if he's getting slandered. He cares that God is being slandered and disrespected. That's point number one. How often, just a little side thing, how often when we face our giants, do we tell the giant how, how amazing our God is? And do we tell the giant in our world, how dare you? How often do we do that for each other? David's kind of going, going, really? I can't believe you just said that. Oh, man, are you in trouble? You're in for a world of pain. So firstly, he gives God the glory. Secondly, he's not shaken by circumstances that shake those around him. No one in the Israelite camp wants to take on Goliath. 
And they've had 40 days to think about it. <laughs> Perhaps that makes it worse because you get more and more frightened the longer that you leave something. Instead of using the time to strategize and learn his weaknesses and choose an appropriate warrior, they've become more frightened. Everything, even Saul does nothing. David's courage is because of his security and trust in God. And he's able to use that to encourage other people. That's also really important. He says to Saul, let no one lose heart over this guy. This guy? You're losing heart over this guy? I'll sort him out. Don't worry about it. And David only had to hear him say, I stand against God once. And he was like, I'm doing something about it. The rest of the army had been hearing this twice a day for 40 days and did nothing. Third point, he's not trying to be somebody else. Saul says, here's my armor. You're going to need it. He goes, no, it doesn't fit right. I just, I'm not feeling good. This is heavy. It's not. I'm a shepherd. I take care of my sheep. I use a sling and a stone. I'm really good at that. He's not trying to be someone he's not. He's not trying to be a Saul. David is David. And he approaches this guy in his God-given identity. Fourth point, he has unshakable faith. David tells his enemy, I love this. It's like one of those scenes in a, like a comedy kung fu movie where, the, where there's a full-on kung fu battle happening in a Chinese restaurant and guy walks up and wah, wah, and he reaches in and rips the guy's heart out of, the, out of his chest and then puts it in a take-home bag and gives it to him before he falls over. This is that kind of thing. I love it. David tells his enemy exactly what he's going to do to him and then he does it. It's such a kung fu. I love it. It's a Jackie Chan moment. David tells his enemy in no uncertain terms what he's going to, about to do to him so that everybody can hear it. This is what I'm going to do to you. And then he does it. He didn't showboat. One rock. <laughs> he just used what he needed to. He only used what he needed to. That's another big clue about whose identity this David stands in. Because if he was going to showboat and... You know, then it's more about him. This is what I'm going to do, you do. He did it. Everybody heard it. Everybody saw it. David caps off his speech to Goliath by telling him, and all gathered here what will happen to the Philistine army, and that by it the whole world, the whole world, will know that there is a God in Israel. And we are part of that whole world, knowing that there was a God in Israel. There's still a God in Israel, and that same God is our God. Yes. Do you ever have times that you really want to scream out loud, but if you do it, everyone's going to wig out and dogs are going to start howling and people are going to call the cops. And so you get a pillow and you just go. <laughs> like when I'm listening to Cam and Rach talk about the kids, I'm like. But I can't do it, so I go, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. David believes that through God, the battle is already won and God is a sure thing. He doesn't go, this is what I'm going to try and do and gee, if it works, I'm going to do my little in-zone dance. He, he already has done the in-zone dance and he hasn't even killed him yet. It's just a formality. So they're David's attributes. He gives God the glory. He's not shaken by circumstance. He's not trying to be someone else. And he has an unshakable faith. By contrast, Goliath 
was full of, his, full of himself, full of his own assurance in his own ability and strength. When, when, Samuel, when in the book it's written, the champion, that word champion means that this was a, um, something that happened often when two opposing armies face off against each other. They send out their individual champions. The champions go at it. The guy that's still standing, then that's like a, a sign as to who's going to take the upper hand of the battle. That's how they did things. It was like tradition back then. So the mere fact that Goliath is a champion, the only reason why he's a champion is he's still alive. <laughs> That's why he's a champion. He's still alive because he's killed all the other guys because he's three metres big, you know? That's what champion means. Send out your champion. Philistines were expecting their, the Israelites to send out their champion and our champion will beat your champion. The word champion, uh, Goliath was a champion purely because he's still alive. It's kind of no wonder he's pretty big. So he's full of himself because he's won X amount of battles against the other champions because he's still alive. And so he's, he boasts from himself. David boasts about God and from God and from the platform of whose he is. Goliath boasts in who, who I am. This is who I am. So Goliath, by contrast, was full of his own assurance, his own ability, and his own strength. And Goliath pointed to self and attributed his victories to himself. David attributes his victories to God. Goliath attributes victories to himself. This is where, in preparing this, it got really awkward because I asked the question of myself, how am I sometimes like Goliath? I don't mean in... I know that obviously physically I'm like Goliath. That's just a given. I just, let's just put that to... Move on, church. Move on. I'm trying to make a point here. So, but what I'm trying to say is how am I in my mindset and my attitude? How am I like Goliath? And I want to apologize, guys. I want to just push on some sore spots um, and, and mostly to guys because guys we do this this is my question that I asked myself what happens to you as a person Dan when you cease to be able to do the thing that you once did really well and found your identity in ouch that's a hard question when I was working at Armadale Tourist Park and I worked there for about eight years my job there was groundskeeper maintenance man carpenter plumber tiler Security guy, <laughs> dog poo, picker upper, kind of everything. Often, not, not often, sometimes when I was working outside, like I'm building something or I'm fixing something, out of the blue, I'd have some guy just waltz up who's, he's on holiday time in his head. I'm on, I've got to get a thousand things done before 6 p.m. time. He just comes up and just starts talking <laughs> about all the glory days. Of and telling me how I should do whatever I'm doing. I haven't, he hasn't said hello. He just starts coming up and walking into, you know, has to feel the urge to tell me how he could do that a hundred times better when he was playing. Yeah, and I've just insecure. You might be thinking, Dan, that's a bit harsh to call someone insecure like that. Just because they have the irrepressible urge to tell a perfect stranger 
everything about themselves in the first five minutes when the stranger's trying to do their work and they haven't even introduced themselves. Insecure? I don't know. Men, we're guilty of giving too much identity authority to our occupation. We are in Australia, meet someone for the first time. G'day, I'm Dan. Rhett? Exactly. Second question. Rhett just said it. What do you do? What do you do? For a crust. Exactly. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying, oh, don't say that. What I'm saying is that uh, how much of it is really important it's good that we do stuff. We have jobs or occupations or we do. But what happens when there's an old joke that, that, that goes, what will Postman Pat be called when he retires? Uh, Pat. Not retired, Postman Pat. And I used to post letters like no one else. It's our way of working out who we are and where we fit in our society. I get that. However, men especially, we're guilty of this. If we put who we are, our identif- if we find our main source of identity in what we do, my question is, what happens when you're not able to do what, you're, what you can do anymore? Does your identity also go with it? I'm not knock- if you're a carpenter, then be the best carpenter you can. I'm not knocking that at all. But one day, you might not be able to hold the tools in your hand anymore. Whose are you? Are you first and foremost gods? First and foremost, are we who we are? Where is it grounded in? Us or God? If I'm, if I'm to think like that and I find my identity in, in, in my abilities, what happens when I meet someone who's better at what I do than me? There are people in this room who are much better speakers than I am. There are people in this room who are better musicians than I am, people in this room who are better artists than I am, people in this room, you name it. I could either be incredibly intimidated or I could just walk forward and go, I'm doing what I think I'm called to do because of whose I am. Our society, we, 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 it's, it's a never-ending game of, of one-upmanship in our society just to feel a tad less insecure about ourselves. We need to one-up and... Oh, I've built this. Oh, that's nice. But look at this. You know, just so you can get through the next day. It's a crazy way to live. It's exhausting. When Goliath is killed, it's the Philistines' turn to lose heart. They put all their, notice the Israelites have lost heart for 40 days. Goliath goes, the Philistines are like, we banked everything on, on our champion. Now our champion's dead. And so is our courage. This is a really important point. There's a powerful lesson here for us. If we're anchoring, and this is even to people in church, obviously, because you guys are in church. If we are anchoring our identity and security and faith and hope in our champions, no matter who they are, even in our amazing speakers that we listen to on podcasts, I'm not saying don't learn from them, okay? But if we're, uh, what's the word, outsourcing our identity, even onto people who are our champions... You get where I'm coming from? If we haven't properly formed our own identity and foundation in God and in Jesus, and this is where it ties in with picking up your cross, then what happens to our identity and security if our champions fall? 
I'm not saying don't learn from other people. I'm not saying don't glean with some very wise men and women that we should learn from. They've been put in positions where we're supposed to learn from them. That's awesome, but do not anchor in them. And they, if they're worth their salt, they will tell you, do not anchor in me. Dangerous. It's not so dissimilar to living for a cause, even a seemingly good one. Even in the church, we can mistakenly build our lives on a culture or a flavor or a personality. Instead, that's really important, instead of on and in and for Christ. It's so easy. We can outsource our identity onto someone and never really build a firm foundation. I call this churchianity. It's churchianity. It's not Christianity. Churchianity is easily offended. Churchianity, churchians get easily offended. Why? Because it's about them. Churchians and churchianity constantly needs propping up all the time and attention from others. It's inward focused, not Christ focused. Are we Christians or are we churchians? I am guilty in my life at times of being a churchian. We're not automatically immune just because we attend church on a Sunday morning. There's a huge difference between finding and anchoring and growing our identity in Jesus and needing it to be defined by the people in our church. I want to leave you with some thoughts and I encourage you to, the little bits of paper that I've put out, I've got some things on it which might go, ooh, ow, ouch. Um, <laughs> please take it as a private, private reflection and private time during the week. Um, also, I, I need to let you know that nothing that I speak from out the front is like, I'm across this. Everyone else needs to get, on the, get with the program. It's stuff that I ask myself. It's stuff that I wrestle with myself. Your true identity, here's the takeaway. Here's the so what. Here's the what do I leave here with. Your true identity is built on the solid bedrock and foundation of knowing whose you are. Whose you are. Kylie Gray. Whose you are. Cam. Whose you are, John. Whose you are. I'm a child of God. I'm created in His image for His purposes. I'm forgiven. I'm adopted. I'm free. I'm co-heirs with, of the promise with Christ. I'm in Christ Jesus. I am rescued. I am made right with the Father. Therefore, my security as a person is anchored and rooted in that God identity as a son or a daughter of God. My identity no longer then has to strive or is a slave to my own ability, my own strength. It's not anchored in how I feel about myself, how good looking I am or not, how much money I do or don't have, my status, my job, whether I'm a good person. I'm free from that weight. 
I no longer seek to find out who I am through the different ways my culture and world and society demands that I do. And there's a bunch of them. The irony is that people think that Christians are anchored and shackled to a bunch of rules. I kind of go, well, there's only 10. There's thousands out there. I'll end on this. I grew up in the Northern Territory and um, different times of the year, uh, uh, I was a young person once, we were invited down, uh, young people from Darwin, we were invited down by the elders and leaders in Central Australia, in Walpuri country, Lajimanu, Kakaringi, sort of imagine Alice Springs, draw a line west, halfway between there and the border. That's roughly it. Hot, dry, dusty, 50 degrees during the day. It's a full-on place. We used to go down. We'd take a busload. Of, it'd take us a couple of days to get there. Take a busload of kids. We'd go down and we'd just hang out with the, the community there. Just hang. Play sports, be in the schools. It was great. Loved it. The elders would invite us. It was fantastic. Some of the best times of my life. Now, in a lot of uh, tradition, this was traditional indigenous culture. It was a dry community. In a lot of these traditional indigenous cultures, there's still a kin system, a skin system. It's an identity system. In our, so we were just talking, me and Rhett before gave the little example of in our society, we find out where we fit and who we are by what we do, yeah? In Walpuri country, it wasn't by what you do. It's by who you're with. What happens? You come into a town and all the kids want to tell you who you are and tell you what your name is because you get given a name. And you could be the biggest jerk on the planet. You'll still be given a name because they need to know where you fit. But it's not about your abilities. It's about who you're with. So say you could be hanging around and, and some of the girls want, they want your skin name to be this because it lines up with who they might marry one day if they, if they think they like you or it doesn't if they think, no, gosh, no. And then some other kid will go, oh, no, you're a this, you're a this because, you know, you were me, man. And then some other kid will do this. But what happens is after a few days, the elders have been watching who you hang out with and who you click with. And then the thing that ends all the conversation about your name my name, incidentally, in Walpuri country is Japuljari. The thing that ended all the conversation about, no, you're Nakamara, no, you're Jakamara, no, 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 is that an elder steps in and goes, you're Japuljari. Because I see that you've been hanging out with another young man who's also Japuljari, so you guys are brothers. End of conversation. All the conversation ceases because the elder, the father, the mother, has stepped in and said, this is who you are. Because of who you're with. End of conversation. They don't care whether you've got all these abilities. They work out who you're with in large amount. They work out who you are by who you're with. Who we are, Church is worked out by who we're with, who we stand with, who we stand on.
who we are is determined by whose we are. I think there are people in this room that possibly are wrestling with, I've forgotten who I am. There's a scene at the end of the movie Blood Diamond, which is set in Sierra Leone. The civil war that happened in Sierra Leone in the 90s. Blood diamonds are the most rarest four of diamond. They're pink. The warring factions in there, both it's a race on to see who can find the blood diamonds so they can buy arms to fund the war. Rebel groups. And they will press gang families, kids, anybody into servitude to dig for these blood diamonds. The man in, in Blood Diamond, the main character, Solomon, is, is taken by a rebel group to dig for diamonds and his family are scattered. And his young son is picked up by the rebels because his young son's big enough to pick up a gun and they brainwash him into becoming part of this rebel guerrilla group. Solomon is in the mines wondering where his family is. There's a scene right at the end powerful scene go and see Blood Diamond hire it out or whatever Google just this scene if you like go onto YouTube Google Blood Diamond you are my son this is for the people in the room who have forgotten who you are right at the end Solomon's trying to find that he, he hid a Blood Diamond he didn't give it to the guys he's supposed to give it to to buy arms he hid it so that he could go and find his family again and get out of the country he hid it He's uncovering it in the dirt and he stands up and standing in front of him is his own boy who's about 10 with a gun pointed right at him. This is what Solomon says. His son's name is Dia. He goes, Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me. Look at me. What are you doing? This is a kid who's been brainwashed. He says, you are Dia Vendi. He's eyeballing this kid who's pointing a gun straight at his own father. You are Dia Vendi of the proud Mende tribe. You're a good boy. Who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew for your sister Nyada and the new baby. The cows are waiting for you, Dia. And Babu, the wild dog who minds no one but you, wants no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you, dear. I defy you to watch this scene without crying. And you will come home with me and be my son again. And he embraces the boy. The boy burst into tears and lowers his gun. Some of us in this room need to hear, I am your father. And because the father knows us better than anyone else, the father tells you, this is who you are. I am your father. And you will come home with me and be my child again.